This was how more mainstream Bitcoin culture degraded from intellectual expressions of ideas, the 2017-era debates, to tribal recreations of the past. The old enemies were replaced with new enemies who were more convenient for the times, but we retained the Bitcoiners against the world ethos of the scaling era, which led to many newbies being overly defensive of their beliefs. It's worth noting that this is a recurring cycle, and of course a general trope of the good old days. Because in 2017, people were saying how much better the discussions were in 2014. And in 2014, people missed the discussions of 2011. This is a naturally occurring phenomenon, as communities go from niche interest to mainstream. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. Today, we have got one hell of a read. And the guy's take for this one ended up being pretty long, but I didn't actually get to cover a lot of the things that I had in, intended to cover. But I do have links to episodes in which these specific things have been addressed in lengthy detail. Um, and I've even talked about them kind of in the same context that this episode does. So uh, if you look in the description of the show, uh, you will see a handful of other episodes that are related to this that you can go explore if you would like. But I had a lot of people ask me about this one just because it's a pretty lengthy one and it's good. It's good. I, as I said in yesterday's episode, is I don't completely agree with Jameson Lopp here. Um, there are definitely some things uh, that some kind of framing and things that he says in this that I, uh, I tend to take a little bit of an issue with, so to speak. And I am not a fan of Ethereum, uh, but I think... I think he has a really good, first off, the history of Bitcoin maximalism that he lays out here, I think, is really good. Um, and it brings attention to a lot of the things that people did not probably don't know. Um, and a lot of the reasons why Bitcoin maximalism ended up where it was or where it is today. But I think he also, and this is something that we talked about in Guy's Take and the Bitcoin maximalism episodes that we did uh, some time ago, which again, links in the show notes. It does a good job of breaking down where this is kind of bifurcated and turned into multiple areas of the culture or the online persona, so to speak, and where a lot of people have just kind of lost the plot. So I think there's a lot of really great... Um, there's a lot of really great stuff in this article. I think I think Jameson largely lays out a really good argument. Um, and uh, I'll push back on a few things in this guy's take, uh, but probably the, the links in the episodes will have the more thorough explanation of my perspective on all of this. So really quick, uh, let's just thank our sponsors and then we will jump right in. This episode is brought to you by Fold the only debit card that pays you sound money 
for using fiat money. This is a debit card where you get sats back on literally everything that you purchase. And there is just something magical about it. And, you know, it's not just using the debit card either. I have 20 million 300, almost 400,000 sats, um, which is 0.2 Bitcoin just from using this debit card, just from not using my PNC card and switching over to the fold card. But you can also get, um, and this is something that I do religiously, is gift cards for major retailers and the merchants to do, like, like Uber for traveling is gold. Uh, Amazon is a huge one that I use a lot. I can get 2.5% base on their gift cards. Amazon, Amazon doesn't charge my cards anymore. They get gift cards for years. I have done nothing, or at least in, since it's been available on Fold, Amazon has only gotten gift cards. If you haven't gotten an Airbnb yet for Bitcoin 2023, don't forget you can get 10% off with code Bitcoin Audible, by the way, also in the show notes. But you can get 3% back by buying, buying Airbnb gift cards. And you can get Southwest plane ticket while you're at it. 4% back. I'm telling you, this is the lowest barrier way to stack sats without any extra cost. This isn't adding 3% to my cost of these things. I'm just getting 3% of what I spend back in Bitcoin. And they have just made a more direct partnership with Visa. And uh, they announced it actually in an article on Bitcoin Magazine and that is their push. They are going to go international and they're going to try to bring the fold card to as many people as possible. So everybody out there who is not in the U.S., uh, who are constantly like, win Europe, uh, hopefully that means much, much sooner. So keep an ear out and don't forget that you get 20,000 sats free if you sign up with my link. It'll be right there in the show notes for your convenience. All right, with that... Let's get into today's read. And it's titled A History of Bitcoin Maximalism Written by Jameson Lopp Bitcoin maximalism isn't what most people think it is, but there is a logical explanation for how it transformed into what we see today. Over the past decade, the crypto asset ecosystem has exploded in size and complexity. While the overwhelming majority of projects are arguably scams or simply shitty ideas, one in a hundred does manage to innovate and find product market fit. Bitcoin maximalism has evolved as a result, but it has also become more complex as schisms have appeared. Unfortunately, as I'll explain throughout this post, some aspects of stereotypical maximalist culture, as it is known, are detrimental to the calls of Bitcoin adoption. The goals for this article are as follows. Provide a historical overview of impactful points for Bitcoin maximalism's journey. Describe variants of maximalism and the pros and cons of toxic behavior. Offer warnings and suggestions for going forward. This is an incredibly lengthy essay. Very few readers will make it all the way through. If you really want to skip all the details, you can jump to the summary and conclusion. The History of Toxic Maximalism Genesis Long ago, in the days before Bitcoin Twitter had even formed as a community, the shelling point of Bitcoin discussion and culture was the Bitcoin Talk forums. It was a simpler time. 
There were hundreds of new network launches that were regularly publicized by their creators with an A-N-N posts on the altcoins board. Pretty much all of them were trivially modified copies of the Bitcoin codebase with changes that were mostly marketing and little substance. The very first use of the word shitcoin was in the context of scammers creating worthless knockoffs of Bitcoin. Bitcoin Talk Forum Post Re Bitcoin is not as advertised. November 8, 2010. Quote from Gavin Andreessen It would have to be better in some way other than just I started the new chain, so I've got a lot of easy to generate at the beginning coins. Response You say that now, but if Bitcoin really takes off, I can see lots of get rich quick imitators coming on the scene. Gitcoin, Nitcoin, Witcoin, Titcoin, Shitcoin. Some of them are sure to attract users with promises like, Why use Bitcoin when you can only generate 50 Bitcoins every few months? Use Shitcoin instead, and you'll get 51 Shitcoins every two minutes. Of course, the cheap imitators will disappear as quickly as those 1990s internet currencies like flus and beans, but lots of people will get burned along the way. Altcoins were, by and large, low-effort pump-and-dumps, and a defensive culture formed as plenty of Bitcoiners got burned by scams and unfair crypto economics. We agreed that pre-mines that allocated tokens to insiders were unethical, and many thought that even if an altcoin managed to innovate and create value, that innovation would eventually be subsumed by Bitcoin. Thus, they could be dismissed as Bitcoin testnets. Altcoins spanned the gamut from scams to stupid endeavors. They were all shitcoins for one reason or another, and suitable neither as sound money nor as investments. Maximalism certainly existed in those early days. Though the term hadn't been coined, maximalist attitudes tended to be more of a firm no-thanks when presented with worthless altcoin projects. Many of us found it offensive that some folks thought they'd be able to get rich quick from low-effort Bitcoin knockoffs. In the early post-Satoshi days of protocol development, when Gavin Andreessen was the project maintainer, there really wasn't much of an organized development team. Everyone who contributed to the codebase was a volunteer. There was no money to fund development. As such, Bitcoin needed a developer culture. One way of attracting and retaining contributor talent was to discourage people from joining other projects by portraying altcoins as useless scams, which they were. In those first few years, the network was weak in a variety of ways, so there was a significant need to stave off the vampiric effects of altcoins. Without this narrative, it's possible that Bitcoin development would not have bootstrapped itself over the next few years, in which we saw significant elevation of the talent pool's depth of understanding of the protocol's strengths and weaknesses. By 2014, Bitcoin had a rather vibrant group of skilled contributors. The sidechain's white paper was released, and the future was bright. We finally had an answer for how to enable folks to innovate within the Bitcoin ecosystem, while not risking harm to Bitcoin itself. In 2015, the Lightning Network white paper promised even further innovation in the area of low-latency, high-volume transactions that were also anchored to Bitcoin. Maximalists rejoiced. The world was our oyster, and hyper-Bitcoinization was clearly underway. Of course, just a few months later in 2015, we saw the launch of Ethereum, which was a completely new approach to crypto asset protocols. Thus began a major shift in the development of altcoins. The toxicity begins. Mircea Popescu was a lead figure in the early development of toxic maximalism, before it was even a term. 
He was a prolific writer, or ranter, who disseminated some ideas that have had a lasting impact. And at least a few of his followers from the cult of Lacera Nassima are still with us today, having attained influential positions on social networks. The Mircha adherents, sometimes known as the Bitcoin Assets Denizens, their hangout on IRC, formed a unique culture. In their eyes, if you didn't have a GPG key on the WOT, the Bitcoin OTC Web of Trust, then you were an unperson. If you did jump through the hoops to join the WOT, then you needed to engage in meaningful interactions and trades to get yourself recommended by other Web of Trust users via positive reviews. Popescu held court in this IRC room, and if you didn't fit in with their culture, understand the lingo, and have a high tolerance for bigotry, misogyny, and racism, then you didn't have a very good time there. Mircha did not place much weight on the effectiveness of his communications. He'd post a rant in his bombastic, hard-to-follow style and would not be particularly concerned with how it was interpreted. Take, for example, his anti-Segwit article in which he decided to, quote, explain his view by posting a bounty for a protocol developer's assassination. While he did so to make an interesting point about verifiability, it's lost on the vast majority of readers due to the shock value and lack of explanation. The hashtag Bitcoin Assets crew were so adamant about rejecting changes to Bitcoin that they forked Bitcoin Core 0.5, creating the real Bitcoin Foundation, and maintained their own full-node implementation. Well, maintained is being generous. Due to the high level of friction to join this group and their poor outreach efforts, it remained quite niche. Although Mircha himself failed to expand his reach beyond the one IRC room, he was banned from Twitter for making a death threat against Andreas Antonopoulos, some of these behaviors were mimicked by the adherents onto other platforms. The maximalism moniker is minted. The term Bitcoin maximalism was popularized in 2014 by Vitalik Buterin. Excerpt. One of the latest ideas that has come to recently achieve some prominence in parts of the Bitcoin community is a line of thinking that has been described by both myself and others as Bitcoin dominance maximalism, or just Bitcoin maximalism for short. Essentially, the idea that an environment of multiple competing currencies is undesirable, that it is wrong to launch yet another coin, and that it is both righteous and inevitable that the Bitcoin currency comes to take a monopoly position in the cryptocurrency scene. While Buterin did not coin the term, it had already been in use, as you can see from an earlier blog post. He certainly played a role in positioning Ethereum and his perspective on crypto assets as a foil to Bitcoin and a dominant view, at the time, that altcoins were automatically immoral scams. Maximalism as a pejorative is clearly meant to evoke a certain closed-mindedness or lack of imagination in the Bitcoin community. One could even claim that maximalism is anti-free market. Over the coming years, as countless thousands of projects were launched, some maximalists updated their views to be more nuanced while still considering themselves maximalists, as Bitcoin was clearly a different beast from all other projects and had no real competition in the realm of sound money. Other maximalists became more extreme in their views that literally everything other than Bitcoin was a scam and focused on shaping narratives to bolster their views. The Scaling Wars by 2015, we saw a mass migration from Bitcoin Talk to the r slash Bitcoin subreddit, where it had amassed over 150,000 subscribers. 
While Bitcoin Talk did have admins, it was also a forum that was composed of many boards for different topics, so moderation was less common as long as you were posting in the appropriate topic area. Reddit as a platform is somewhat different. Due to how Reddit sequesters users into silos that each have their own rules and rulers, moderators, along with how content visibility is modified by voting, I see Reddit as a platform that incentivizes groupthink and emotional responses over rational debate. The end result of this is that large subreddits inevitably become echo chambers. If you try to discuss a contrarian idea, then you won't see any engagement because your post will be downvoted to oblivion. As there was more contention around how to move forward with scaling Bitcoin, the moderators of our Bitcoin decided to ban discussion of hard fork proposals. This seems to be an inflection point at which, quote, technical maximalism, everything will be a Bitcoin sidechain, forced its view on the mainstream conversation. Why? Because the R Bitcoin moderators were influenced by Thamos and immersed in the technical conversation on the development mailing list. Thus, they just brought its norms over to a wider body of folks following along on Reddit. Naturally, the decision of R Bitcoin moderators to ban discussion of certain topics resulted in a great deal of backlash, and it catalyzed a number of folks into migrating to the RBTC subreddit. Now, seven years later, the residents of RBTC are still wailing over losing the scaling wars due to, quote, censorship. If you wish to dive down the rabbit hole of their grievances, you can check out A History of Censorship in R Bitcoin, link provided. Personally, I find it to be a silly point to remain hung up on, given that Bitcoin scaling discussions took place in a wide variety of platforms that were not moderated by Bitcoiners, like Twitter. Point being, anyone who cared about the scaling debates was well informed of both sides' positions. During the scaling wars, Bitcoin Twitter coalesced into a substantial community with a lot of debate occurring on it. While this was undoubtedly a net positive for Bitcoin memetics, helping us reach millions of people and reinforce the principles of the system, there are plenty of reasons to believe that Twitter was a net negative for the quality of discourse. While Reddit's mechanics and algorithms tend to squash controversy and create echo chambers, Twitter's engagement mechanics are actually optimized to boost the reach and engagement of controversial posts. Add that to the fact that the content length of tweets is quite restricted and you get a recipe for rewarding, edgy, knee-jerk tweets that dunk on other tweets with a complete lack of nuance. While it can be a fun game to play, it is not conducive for healthy discussion of controversial topics. Reclaiming the Pejorative There's a lengthy history of cultures reappropriating pejoratives, I think it certainly makes sense in the case of maximalism, because we're talking about ideological differences. The attributes of maximalism that many folks find objectionable are actually considered to be highly desirable by maximalists. I'd also argue that while maximalism is a way of navigating the crypto ecosystem, it's also aspirational. Remember that Vitalik's use of the word was for dominance maximalism? That the crypto ecosystem would be dominated by Bitcoin? While Bitcoin is unquestionably dominant even after 14 years, it's not quite as dominant as many maximalists would like. The use of the word maximalist really came back into play during the scaling wars and 2017 ICO hype cycle. It seems that the use of toxic maximalism as a descriptor really picked up in mid-2018. For what it's worth, maximalists were later vindicated when it was shown that roughly 80% of ICOs were scams. Tweet from Stefan Levera 
quote, intolerant and, quote, toxic Bitcoin maximalism? Understand what's going on beneath the surface with altcoins and their affinity scamming. Thread. During the scaling debate, we saw Samson Mao start producing hats as a new form of social signaling. The first hats were Make Bitcoin Great Again and Make Ethereum Immutable, poking fun at the Dow fork. Mao was a prolific hat producer with 10-plus styles sold over the next few years. In late 2019, we saw Samson Mao create toxic maximalism hats as a result of the term being thrown around more frequently. It was a way of social signaling which tribe you were in, Bitcoin only or multi-coin. I think it's fair to suggest that the pejorative reclamation, which happened around 2017, was a resurgent in Mirchen toxic maximalism. This was a response in part due to the failure of technical maximalism's promise that sidechains would result in an explosion of innovation linked to Bitcoin. Rather, we saw sidechains stagnate, while Ethereum and other protocols saw a great deal of adoption and new functionality. Because the narrative of technical maximalism was fading in strength, folks needed a new narrative that didn't require sidechains to succeed. This is what the reverberations of Mircha offered in the form of the hashtag Bitcoin assets folks adopting his style and forcing it into the conversation. By reclaiming the pejorative, Bitcoiners use it as a social signaling mechanism. We see the same sort of signaling of maximalists saying that Bitcoin is not crypto, which is technically incorrect at the surface level, but implies a far deeper meaning in the differences between Bitcoin and every other crypto asset protocol. Pax Maxima In 2018 and 2019, we saw the beginnings of what would become cornerstones of the next iteration of stereotypical Bitcoin maximalism. The Bitcoin Standard was published, Countless new memes were crafted and entered into the vernacular. Bitcoin fixes this, number go up, etc. And carnivore dinners started being held. The scaling wars died not with a bang, but with a multi-year grinding whimper. By 2020, it was quite clear that the plethora of big block Bitcoin forks were not going to gain meaningful traction. A lot of the OGs who had been heavy participants in the scaling wars were weary and withdrew from public life. This left a void for newcomers to fill, but we needed some fresh enemies. It wasn't long before the pandemic provided plenty of cannon fodder. There were plenty of authoritarians to decry, and the money printers went into overdrive. During pandemic lockdowns, we saw an acceleration of, quote, lifestyle maximalism, as several new facets of maximalist culture appeared or were enforced, such as carnivory, laser eyes, anti-woke, weightlifting, tradwife culture, climate change denial, overt Christian moralizing, have fun staying poor retorts, rejection of seed oils and sunscreen, vaccine conspiracies, alt-health cure-alls, contrarianism for the sake of contrarianism, political populism in support of strongmen, fiat criticism of contemporary art and architecture. To be clear, I myself participated in some of the above. This is not a judgment on any of the topics mentioned. The COVID-19 pandemic brought about a significant acceleration in the evolution of Bitcoin maximalist ideology, with a shift from traditional face-to-face -face events to new forms of media such as Clubhouse and even virtual reality. The disruption caused by the pandemic made it essential to explore alternative content distribution channels, and those who leveraged social media engagement were the primary beneficiaries. 
A wave of newcomers with a more limited understanding of Bitcoin were able to dominate the conversation in these new arenas where other Bitcoin enthusiasts were also seeking information and entertainment. Bitcoin already had a head start navigating this new era of online heavy interactions due to the borderless nature of our interest group. Early Bitcoin adopters already tended to be smart, contrarian thinkers who were happy to push the envelope with hot takes on COVID-related authoritarianism. The travel restrictions during the pandemic also played a significant role in directing attention towards the United States, where conferences continued, providing Americans with more platforms to expand their reach. This helped elevate the profile of Americans who were less affected by lockdowns, resulting in a post-2020 narrative that heavily leaned towards digital gold. This narrative was not new to Bitcoin, it had always been dominant, but it is logically more appealing to first-world folks with access to modern financial infrastructure and those subject to U.S. taxation. I also observed an acceleration in the trend of, quote, thought leaders during this period. I saw educators and builders being drowned out by what appeared to be entertainers and performance artists. Folks who were skilled at, quote, growth hacking amassed huge audiences despite only offering shallow content. This was already happening before the pandemic, but now even more so. The problem was, and still is, that the lessons of the scaling wars were highly complex and not easily intuitive. They don't make for great content if you're hoping to increase your engagement and reach on social media networks. What happened next? 1. The new platforms were dominated by oral, second-hand storytelling. It was necessary that the ideas and learnings be passed on, and so some of the old-timers who were there begun doing just that, they told the great war stories to the naive newbies and newbies learned. 2. This next generation began participating in the oral storytelling, telling the traditions of the prior generation without the same first-hand knowledge and thus without any nuance in their views. It was akin to a photocopy of a photocopy with a lot of resolution lost. 3. The economics of these platforms, like Clubhouse and Spaces, were geared to lengthy soliloquies, and thus their engagement mechanics only further incentivized this behavior. This is how more mainstream Bitcoin culture degraded from intellectual expressions of ideas, the 2017-era debates, to tribal recreations of the past. The old enemies were replaced with new enemies who were more convenient for the times, but we retained the Bitcoiners against the world ethos of the scaling era, which led to many newbies being overly defensive of their beliefs. It's worth noting that this is a recurring cycle, and of course a general trope of the good old days, because in 2017, people were saying how much better the discussions were in 2014, and in 2014, people missed the discussions of 2011. This is a naturally occurring phenomenon as communities go from niche interest to mainstream. Antima strikes back. The extremism of the toxic maximalists made many of the more moderate maximalists uncomfortable. Outspoken maximalists who had amassed audiences had to decide, would they continue to talk about whatever they found interesting and accept abusive blowback, or would they self-censor and confine themselves to the Bitcoin echo chamber? From a cultural standpoint, this was a bit unfortunate, and it certainly had a chilling effect as some public personas succumbed to audience capture. Some nuanced maximalists pivoted to become provocateurs of the extremists, using their predictable behavior for engagement farming, 
these folks have come to be known as anti-maximalists, antima, and they love to point out weaknesses, hypocrisy, abhorrent behavior displayed by the extreme maximalists, triggering them by any means possible. These days, that also includes trolling them by using Bitcoin in ways that upset those with more puritanical views. Multifaceted Maximalism We've reached the end of the history lesson. From this point on, I'll be covering my observations of present-day maximalism. What follows will be more subjective and controversial. What is maximalism? This episode is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to build your Bitcoin stack, an automatic savings plan and automatic withdrawals to your keys, and purchases of any size from $10 to $10 million or more. And for those of you who want a more concierge service, who want a hands-on uh, access to a team and expert opinion and assistance in going from zero to a full sovereign self-custody to Bitcoiner, Swan Private has the best service for this there is. And now Swan has the Swan IRA that you can set up so that you can, uh, with both Roth and traditional, so you can buy tax-free and save in your retirement. You can get your business connected. You can get access to the best education and analysis in the space. Uh, and just so you know, if you were in crypto, if you were in FTX, this is exactly where you would have learned that you needed to get your money out before all of those things exploded last year. Swan is just an amazing resource and the best way to onboard the cleanest signal for onboarding into Bitcoin. Check them out. Go to my link at swanbitcoin.com guy and they will just know that I sent you and it's a great way to support the show and thank them for bringing Bitcoin Audible to you. With that, let's jump back in. What is maximalism? What do Bitcoin maximalists believe? Pete Rizzo did a good job covering many of the principles that seem to be upheld as important aspects of Bitcoin maximalism. I pose to you that there is no fixed set of beliefs that can be used to describe Bitcoin maximalism other than perhaps that Bitcoin is the best form of money and no other project can feasibly attain the same set of attributes. I think it's safe to say that there's a lowest common denominator of agreement that these inviolable properties of Bitcoin, link provided, must be protected. But beyond that, there's a great deal of disagreement on what sort of behavior is appropriate when it comes to defending those properties. Personally, I see maximalism as a pragmatic decision that results from our scarcest resource, time. Tweet from Jameson Lopp Maximalism versus multicoinism is a tale as old as time. Do you spread your focus a mile wide and an inch deep, or do you go a mile deep at an inch width? I've come to see modern maximalism as being shaped by three major components. One, the Immaculate Conception. Bitcoin has unique properties like being leaderless and fair supply distribution that cannot be recreated. Two, Ethics of Money Production. Bitcoin is the only ethical money among all crypto assets because of the first point. Thus, other assets should be rejected as monies. Three, A Culture of Protecting Minority Rights and Individual Sovereignty. Because of the software rule set, 
you can call any compatible software Bitcoin and cannot be infringed by the majority. Pete Rizzo dives into the concept in this article. Pretty much all variants of maximalism spring from a foundation of the above principles, and yet no one gets to define the ideological constraints for what is required to be a Bitcoin maximalist. As such, due to the growth and adoption, increase in diversity of the user base, and the fact that everyone views Bitcoin from their own perspective of which attributes are most valuable, we now find ourselves in a situation of heterogeneity. Giacomo Zucco presented his analysis of Bitcoin maximalism several years ago from the perspective of a self-described toxic maximalist. This is tongue-in-cheek, and yet still holds true for many of the more extreme maximalists. The Four Universal Truths 1. Everything which is not Bitcoin is a scam. 2. Every attempt at changing Bitcoin is a scam. 3. Every attempt at pushing people to spend Bitcoin is a scam. And four, we shouldn't be nice to scammers. There is no doubt a disconnect between maximalists and non-maximalists on the approach and merits of maximalism. How outsiders view it. Emotional, dogmatic, toxic, rude, and pessimistic. How maximalists view it. Rational, empirical, healthy, educational, and optimistic. Though, as this essay will attempt to convey... There are many maximalists who see the toxic set of maximalists from the same lens that outsiders view maximalism in general. Simple, non-toxic maximalism is sensible. Here, Neil Woodfine presents a sensible take on the adversarial nature of Bitcoin and how the culture associated with maximalism can be unfriendly. Twitter thread from Neil Woodfine. Bitcoin deals with money. Separating money from the state, managing people's life savings, people's livelihoods depend on it, the path of civilization is altered by the money it's built on. Dangerous, risky stuff. A lot is on the line. In addition to this, the vast majority of the industry surrounding Bitcoin is comprised of scammers and their agnostic enablers. Fraudsters and charlatans that knowingly exploit the lack of understanding in this new technology to profit handsomely at others' expense. Bitcoin industry culture is therefore necessarily one of extreme skepticism, cynicism, rigorous review, and forthright language, regardless of whether you're discussing Bitcoin development, business, or economics. No one is safe. End excerpt. The crypto asset market is as close to a free market as you will ever find, which means that it is a caveat emptor or buyer beware market. You cannot rely upon any authority to save you from scams. And boy, are there a ton of scams. Sticking to Bitcoin makes sense in accordance with the KISS, or keep it simple stupid, principle. Bitcoin is one of the few projects of which there's strong consensus that it's not a scam. There are a variety of reasons for which one can make this claim, but Bitcoin's culture is unique in its focus on careful analysis and community skepticism of changes. The Bitcoin community is by far the only crypto asset community that second-guesses every consensus change, mostly due to the scars left from the block size wars. But that makes it unique. It is money without masters. Many other projects, even if they can't be proven to be malicious scams, may be scams in the sense that the proponents are fooling themselves. 
and few projects in the crypto space are actually leaderless, thus making their potential for scamming far higher. Bitcoin is relatively safe in the context of the risks inherent to other crypto projects. Investing in other tokens is akin to angel investing or penny stock investing. It requires a level of diligence that few folks are willing or able to dedicate. Those who buy such tokens are doing so without any of the legal protections afforded to equity investors, which compounds the risk for those choosing these investments. Bitcoin maximalism and its culture of self-custody and not trusting third parties is a safe refuge for unsophisticated retail investors. It's arguable that Bitcoin will be our one shot at launching a fair monetary system that is not controlled by anyone. Thus, we should be conservative about both the code and the culture. Ultimately, while Bitcoin has many layers of protection, such as miners and fully validating nodes, the foundation rests upon a social layer of consensus amongst the humans who are devoting their time and resources to building and maintaining the network. Maximalism does play a role in keeping Bitcoin's culture robust. Specifically, it's best that anyone who would want to tinker with an inviolable property, such as the supply schedule, doesn't even bother to propose it in the first place. Toxic maximalists repel those people quite well. Ultimately, over the course of generations, Bitcoin's code will reflect our collective ethos. Thus, it's logical to create an effective self-selection mechanism against the sort of culture drift that might one day threaten the sanctity of Bitcoin's monetary policy. Maximalism Morality Many maximalists believe that investing in other cryptocurrencies is stupid, immoral, or uninteresting and should be discouraged and ignored socially for the benefit of others as a form of consumer protection. This goes back to the earliest days of altcoins and the fact that few investors are sufficiently sophisticated to sift through the mountains of trash to find the gems. There's no shortage of examples from 2017 onward of projects with massive advertising budgets preying upon the unsuspecting retail market. One of the biggest scams that collapsed in 2022 ran ads all over the place, even at the Super Bowl. While consumer protection is an admirable goal, it's far from clear just how effective these moral teachings have been. Few newcomers look to Bitcoin maximalists before deciding on an NFT purchase or token presale. From what I've seen, a ton of folks only become Bitcoin maximalists after learning a lesson the hard way and getting burned on an overhyped, quote, investment. While many maximalists generally agree with regard to non-Bitcoin projects, most are stupid or scams, there is some interesting internal conflict over the proper use of Bitcoin itself. That is to say, which use cases are an acceptable use of blockchain space and which are, quote, spam. There are two conflicting perspectives for how to approach this issue, one of which is pretty widely shared among the crypto groups and the other which seems confined to the domain of some Bitcoin maximalists. One, economics is the sole judge of what constitutes spam. Transaction fees ensure the propagation of the chain in perpetuity. Therefore, any paid use of the chain is, quote, good. Two, accessibility is what matters most. Bitcoin users ensure the propagation of the chain in perpetuity. Thus, anything that makes Bitcoin more expensive to use or benefits one group at the expense of the collective, aka miners, is immoral. 
a moral Bitcoiner should strive to use the blockchain as little as possible to keep fee pressure low and fight the tragedy of the commons. As I explained in a 2016 Coindesk op-ed, Bitcoin is not merely money. It is a new type of database with radical integrity and robustness assurances that can be used to improve the trustworthiness of other systems that anchor into it. This perspective also seems to grind the gears of some maximalists who believe that Bitcoin should only be money. This conflict around the correct way to use Bitcoin has arisen numerous times over the years, often in the form of debates about whether or not a certain use case should be considered, quote, spam. Satoshi Dice, The Opraturn Wars, Micropayments and Dust Transactions, Inscriptions. This leads us to NIMBYism. Not in my blockchain, y'all. With recent debates and backlash over folks using Bitcoin for NFTs, I think it's important to note that after many years of Ethereum being the primary factory for shitcoin tokens, we should expect to see a renaissance of token issuance on Bitcoin and Lightning via technologies like RGB and Taro. This could very well become one of the next major points of contention between different variants of maximalists. I believe this was caused by the ethics of money production pillar of maximalism mentioned previously. The flaw in this principle is that it doesn't perfectly map onto Bitcoin, because at a technical level, Bitcoin is a database that can be used for many monies or tokens. The money production ethical argument explains why we should want to build on Bitcoin over alternatives, but it limits attempts to unlock Bitcoin's potential as a broader economy. NIMBYism results in an odd schism and potential hypocrisy. On one hand, many maximalists decry the use of other protocols because folks should be building on Bitcoin, while on the other hand, many of the same maximalists decry folks who are building on Bitcoin for doing it wrong. Trying to impose your subjective morality upon the use of permissionless protocols is a non-starter. You might as well piss into the wind or yell at the clouds. As a technologist, I believe Bitcoin is only limited by human ingenuity. A long-standing maximalist view on altcoins was that anything other cryptocurrencies can do can also be achieved on Bitcoin, a Bitcoin layer, or a centralized alternative that is effectively the same. Though in recent years, prevailing narratives have trended toward Bitcoin shouldn't do blank, rather than we could do blank on Bitcoin. Thus, this group is now actively limiting the advancement of the Bitcoin economy in line with their ideology. They will claim that they do so in order to keep Bitcoin safe from unforeseeable side effects of changes. Tweet from Brian Trolls, Shinobi. Bitcoiners who obsess over stopping other people from using Bitcoin in a way they don't like are the attack, not the idiots doing stupid things. You are wasting mindshare, developer time, and focusing everyone's attention on that instead of improving Bitcoin. Toxic Maximalist Monoculture For the vast majority of Bitcoin users, there's no lifestyle or culture associated with owning this asset. To them, it's just another asset in their portfolio. Perhaps one could argue those Bitcoiners are not as important to the future of the network because they are not contributing much. But there's a subset of people who have made Bitcoin their entire personality and become emotionally invested in it, spending large swaths of their lives focused on evangelizing it, and more controversially, shaming those who don't hold the same views. 
This stereotypical toxic Bitcoin maximalism has become an ideological monoculture. These folks both embrace and perpetuate the stereotype, much to the chagrin of the more moderate or apathetic majority. When this particular subset of Bitcoiners are confronted with opinions that challenge their beliefs, they respond with hostility, sometimes even, quote, swarming like cyber hornets upon their chosen target. Extreme maximalists view all assets, both traditional and crypto, apart from Bitcoin, as scams and doomed to fail, despite objective metrics that at least some of the other projects are thriving. Additionally, they believe that anything built outside of Bitcoin will ultimately be built upon Bitcoin, despite the lack of evidence of that occurring. As a result, they consider any investment made outside of Bitcoin as a mistake, a grift, or a scam. This is a culture of purity and social signaling, which can feel exclusionary. The problem with purity tests is that there's no end to them. The folks who apply ever more restrictive purity tests are buffoons who spiral down a never-ending path of trying to out-virtue signal their peers. One of the best examples pointing out the absurdity of the purity tests can be found in the post, Everyone's a Shitcoiner. Quote, if you spend a reasonable amount of time on the cesspool of misery that is Twitter, and its slightly more tolerable subsect of Bitcoin Twitter, one thing ought to be clear by now. There is no true Bitcoiner. Oh, don't at me, Snowflake. Yes, yes, I've heard it all before. You read The Sovereign Individual twice before your 25th birthday. You can recite Bitcoin is time backwards in your sleep in iambic pentameter. You only eat one meal a day consisting of grass-fed beef liver. You've made the top 50 list for events published on Noster. You sun your balls. I get it. You tried your best to check all the maxi boxes, but you didn't. Why? Because you're not a true Bitcoiner, that's why. You can think you're doing everything right and pass every single purity test that comes your way, but you will eventually find that one purity test that you fail. And that makes you, dear reader, not a true Bitcoiner. Not just you, but all of us. Not only are Bitcoin maximalists not true Bitcoiners, they're actually shitcoiners. End excerpt. A tweet from Andreas Antonopoulos. The ideological purity test is not restricted to Bitcoin maximalism. It also involves a whole spectrum of other toxic isms that must all be passed. Over time, it has become a narrower and narrower ideological framework, reaching a toxic singularity. Ultimately, the only pure Bitcoiner will be a ridiculous caricature, as one by one they attempt to cancel those who deviate. This rigid ideology is self-mocking with delicious irony, political correctness run amok, and identity politics by those who claim to hate both. There's a particularly thorny issue underneath all the talk of Bitcoin maximalism, which is that it can be quite difficult to tell if a given maximalist is logical or emotional, scientific or dogmatic, if you can't engage in long-form conversation with them. And engaging in long-form discussions of first principles is not particularly conducive on popular social media platforms. Maximalism is already heterogeneous. Unlike traditional meat space cultures, there are no geographical boundaries that contain Bitcoiners and serve to guide its culture. Unlike traditional cultures, in Bitcoin, nobody knows your identifying attributes unless you choose to disclose them. Bitcoin culture is heterogeneous, despite any stereotypes that have arisen due to a small but potent group of folks who are active on social media. Loud and aggressive Bitcoiners on Twitter are not representative of Bitcoin culture. Not even Bitcoin Twitter as a whole can be representative of Bitcoin culture. At the time of writing, Hive has indexed 22,000 accounts belonging to the Bitcoin Twitter community. 
That is barely a drop in the bucket in comparison to the estimated millions of Bitcoin owners. Most Bitcoiners don't care about it enough to spend much time talking to others about it, much less to make it a part of their persona. Some Bitcoiners choose to follow a white paper-based orthodoxy, but just as with any organized religion based on a written text, it can be interpreted in a variety of ways and has known flaws. Tweet from Jameson Lopp Fundamentalists should note the following things are not described in the Bitcoin white paper. Script, ASICs, multisig, addresses, mining pools, 21 million coin cap, 8 decimal precision, HD address derivation, 2016 block difficulty retarget, best chain does not equal longest chain, and much, much more. End tweet. Some Bitcoiners believe it is divine and pure due to its immaculate conception and mythological founder who sacrificed immense wealth. They love to quote Satoshi, even out of context, if it furthers their desired narrative. Others consider Satoshi to largely be an irrelevant curiosity at this point. Bitcoin has no official leaders. But some folks choose to take on cheerleader positions, and many gain followings of like-minded Bitcoiners who agree with their perspectives on orthodoxy and morality. Some folks look at Bitcoin and see it as a cult, and it certainly does have some cult-like attributes. But if we're comparing the sociology of Bitcoin to a religion, I'd consider it to be less like Catholicism and more like Protestantism or even Islam. Why? Because there is no structural hierarchy like you have with the Roman Catholic Church. Rather, there are independent scholars who amass followings based upon their teachings and interpretations. Tweet from Nick Carter Bitcoin has some of the trappings of religion, but it isn't a religion in and of itself. Don't confound the two. It's a monetary system based on some embedded principles. It does not offer salvation or enlightenment. Response from Jameson Lopp The, quote, cult of Bitcoin is a paradox. It involves the veneration of ideals antithetical to cults, like self-sovereignty and rejection of authority. Bitcoin is a cult of individuality. End tweet. Some maximalists are Puritans who hate seeing block space used for anything other than to transfer Bitcoin from one address to another. Others are more than happy to pay for block space that stores arbitrary data. Some Bitcoiners believe that mimetic warfare must be waged against any and all non-Bitcoin protocols because they are, in some way, competing with Bitcoin for network effects. Others are confident that Bitcoin is already destined to win because all competing networks are weaker or flawed in comparison. Thus, fighting frail opponents is a waste of resources. Bitcoin maximalism no longer necessarily means Bitcoin only, as there is a great deal of functionality that Bitcoin does not offer. Going even deeper than that, while OG maximalism rested on the premise that eventually Bitcoin would eventually offer any and all functionality, we have yet to see the explosive growth of innovation via Bitcoin-anchored systems. And today, some maximalists have even gone so far as to reject anything they consider to be non-monetary functionality in Bitcoin. Any of the above may be more passive or more aggressive in sharing their beliefs. Against Toxic Maximalism By now, we've established that maximalism is a rather complex topic. This should come as no surprise. Humans are complex social creatures. While this is an incredibly murky ethical gray area, I will attempt to draw some rough lines with regard to what behavior I find to be sensible versus behavior I find questionable.
defensive versus offensive maximalism. It's perfectly acceptable to defend Bitcoin, especially when you come across folks who are lying about the properties of Bitcoin or the properties of their own project for their personal gain. But there's little use attacking folks for being interested in other projects. Being a Bitcoiner and being interested in other things are not mutually exclusive. In many cases, quote, toxic maximalist behavior is justified, as it is due to taking a principled stance against someone who is threatening or whining about Bitcoin. I find it quite appropriate for the cyber hornet swarm to react defensively against fudsters or authoritarians who would love to see Bitcoin fail. Maximalists wish for no-coiners and alt-coiners to stop attacking Bitcoin as part of their marketing efforts. Bitcoin has no centralized foundation with a marketing budget like many altcoins. There's no shortage of altcoiners who are incentivized to spread FUD about Bitcoin in order to make their protocol appear superior. In some cases, people associated with altcoins will explicitly sponsor attacks on Bitcoin. For example, the executive chairman of Ripple openly sponsored a $5 million attack on Bitcoin's proof-of-work security. Alternatively, some Ethereum proponents designed and quote, ultrasound money narrative that ETH's monetary properties were superior because it's now, sometimes, more deflationary than Bitcoin. Tweet from Jameson Lopp. Dear Berneski, Charles Larson, and Greenpeace USA, We haven't heard back regarding collaboration. Understandable, it can feel overwhelming. I hereby offer to change the proof-of-work code for a consultation fee of 10 Bitcoin, thus saving 95% of your budget. P.S. I will even compile the binaries. End tweet. Defending against such narratives is perfectly acceptable. If altcoiners did not attack Bitcoin and did not attempt to ride the coattails of Bitcoin by conflating things as all being part of the same crypto industry, there'd be far less conflict. But from my perspective, a line gets crossed when Bitcoiners butt into other folks' lives to chastise them from a position of moral superiority. Toxic Bitcoiners are those who act like it's not good enough for Bitcoin to win. Everyone else has to fail. The following is an excerpt from one of many toxic maximalist chat rooms. I'm not saying it's representative of all toxic maximalists, but I certainly have noticed a pattern. Many of them tend to cycle through Twitter accounts on a regular basis due to being permanently banned as a result of the content they post. Quote, my last account was nuked for threatening to kill shitcoiners. Response, killing shitcoiners should be an Olympic sport. Remember who used to enjoy making death threats? Mircha Popescu. There is nothing amusing about threats. We should really be condemning any abuse that rises to this level. While some will claim that this is a problem specific to Bitcoin, it's a simple fact that every community that grows to sufficient size will have some hateful, vitriolic folks. There's certainly a segment of Bitcoin proponents who seem to love hating non-Bitcoin projects more than they love promoting Bitcoin. It's a shame that these folks don't seem to realize that they have become that which they hate, buttcoiners. Toxic maximalists veer near buttcoinery. Tweet from Jameson Lop. Crypto critics. 100% of the industry is scams that create no value. Bitcoin maximalists, 99.9% of the industry is scams that create no value. So close, yet so far. End tweet. 
I've enjoyed observing buttcoiners and crypto critics over the past decade as they spend an inordinate amount of their time making fun of the antics in this industry, all the while watching it grow in value by orders of magnitude while denying that there's any true value behind what is being built. Unfortunately, over the years, I've seen more commonalities emerge between the no-coiner critics and certain flavors of maximalists. Toxic maximalists are individuals who strongly believe that only Bitcoin will be successful as a cryptocurrency, often referring to all other coins as shitcoins. They tend to belittle and insult anyone who expresses even the slightest interest in any altcoin, labeling them as shitcoiners. However, is it really possible that no other technology besides Bitcoin will have any value? Are smart contracts, DeFi, and NFTs completely worthless? This narrow-minded and insecure mentality is akin to a cult, as it fails to acknowledge the ecosystem of crypto assets that is objectively providing utility today. It's also amusing to see the historical ignorance of folks who don't seem to realize that NFTs and DEXs were OG Bitcoin ideas. It wasn't until the latest generation of Puritans arrived that some decided these were sinful. How did this happen? I'm sure there are plenty of reasons. But if I were to speculate on the most common. 1. Folks who dabbled in NFTs and DEXs got burned and now reject them outright. And 2. Since the development of these things wasn't happening on Bitcoin and doesn't appear to be happening on Bitcoin, it's easier to decry them as being worthless than it is to try to build competing functionality. Toxic maximalists don't seem to understand that it's possible to want to see multiple projects succeed, including Bitcoin. It can be frustrating to see such close-minded and cult-like behavior within the community. While it could be argued that money is a zero-sum game, it's not controversial to claim that technology and wealth are certainly not zero-sum games. As such, I believe that multiple crypto asset networks will exist and serve different use cases. Of course, the value will be concentrated in the largest few due to network effects and the fact that no one wants to have to manage dozens of different tokens. Tweet from Jameson Lop. Nobody wants to manage dozens of different types of money. Non-Bitcoin protocols are here to stay, and some other blockchains offer unique and valuable features. The market has already shown this, as billions of dollars are stored and transferred via other crypto asset protocols. People voluntarily pay fees to use these other blockchains, in some cases generating significant revenue for miners and stakers on these networks. Maximalists who deny this are ignoring the reality of the free market. Spare us your wishful thinking that all non-Bitcoin projects will collapse. On one hand, if you deplore regulatory authorities, then you should find it important to call out scams. That is how one supports self-regulation. On the other hand, if you call out everything you don't like as a scam, you'll suffer from the boy who cried wolf problem, and most folks will consider you a fearmonger who creates more noise than signal. A Theory on Modern Toxic Maximalism There are plenty of rational reasons to be a maximalist. But I suspect many of the latest generation maximalists did not arrive at their conclusions by following the same path as the OGs. Many may, in fact, have short-circuited the rationale and have been spoon-fed the memes, narratives, and idioms 
without digesting the substance from which they sprang. When Bitcoin talk was the shelling point for discourse, contributors rose in reputation over time based on the quality and thoughtfulness of their posts. The longer form of those platforms rewarded extended dialogue and debate. Once the pandemic hit, some folks shifted to focusing on social media engagement as a way to wield influence. Twitter's engagement mechanics reward dunking and general dickishness, which was noticed by plenty of personalities in the space, who became more and more provocative in their content, in an attempt to be more visible and shout louder than bad actors who would otherwise dominate the narrative for newcomers. I believe that this resulted in otherwise rational and intelligent people pandering towards algorithms that encourage behaviors and communication styles that are actually rather high time preference. That is to say, prioritizing knee-jerk reactions and engagement over tribalistic matters, while avoiding the more boring and complex topics that require nuance. I do consider this shift to be a net negative for the quality of Bitcoin discussion. While those who have engaged in these tactics have succeeded in attracting a large audience, the collateral damage that has been done to the culture of the economic majority of Bitcoin has gone largely undiscussed. If this theory is correct, this is detrimental because the latest crop of maximalists is unable to logically defend their beliefs, and thus they are more likely to resort to fallacies, dragging down quality of discussion even further. This would support the mimetic theory concept Rigel Walsh mentions in this presentation. In short, we have distilled many of Bitcoin's key principles into punchy one-liner memes. This is good for Bitcoin because it allows the propagation of the underlying principles to occur much faster and easier than if folks had to read lengthy essays about them. The irony that the length of this essay will limit its dissemination does not escape me. An unfortunate result is that while the memes make mainstreaming easier, it also necessarily means that folks' understanding of the fundamentals behind why those properties are important is going to get diffused and eventually lost or not understood by the mainstream adopters. What happens when you have a new wave of adopters arrive and a bunch of them who only have a surface level of understanding want to cheerlead further adoption? They copy what they see other, quote, leaders in the space doing and try to outcompete them by being more extreme. This ramps up tribalism and toxicity. And thus, instead of the conflicts focusing on intellectual, philosophical, or technical discussions, we devolve into the Internet of Beefs, in which the conflict becomes about the culture itself. If we mainly talk in memes, what we lose is nuance, and a lot of the problems we're experiencing with toxic behavior are due to a rejection of nuance. Toxic folks tend to frame everything as being either black or white. Either you're with me or you're against me. One side effect of a world that lacks nuance and is mostly composed of social signaling is that it makes it a lot easier for sociopaths to infiltrate the group. Put out the right social signals and then trick folks into following them into some sort of scam. Insert picture of Richard Hart. If you know, you know. Toward a healthier culture. If a little toxicity can be a good thing, how can we possibly state that certain toxicity is bad? 
One good principle to instill might be that there doesn't always have to be a target to attack. There's no shortage of enemies who would love to see Bitcoin fail. We don't need to be actively creating new enemies from within our own ranks. Avoid autoimmune reactions. If we consider toxic Bitcoin maximalists to be like white blood cells in Bitcoin's immune system, then we should also understand that sometimes they will misfire in a sort of autoimmune disease. I think this is a result of some extremely online folks caring a bit too much and reacting with knee-jerk responses to any behavior they find suspicious. Take, for example, the anti-woke backlash to a code change that occurred in Bitcoin Core. This incident was particularly telling regarding the sensitivity of some folks, as the change made absolutely no functional difference to Bitcoin Core, much less to Bitcoin as a protocol. In this scenario, I can see an argument that the toxic maximalists cared so much about Bitcoin that they thought the blacklist naming issue was a waste of developer resources. Was their deep concern misplaced? Yes. Was it unhealthy? You bet. What the toxic folks don't seem to realize is that this is an open project without leaders. No one has the authority to decide what is important and how other contributors should spend their time. Tweet from Brad Mills There's a fringe group of Bitcoiners forming around the positive stack sats movement that are acting more like BSV shills, XRP the standard plebs, and vile gang bcashers. Stack Sats is being co-opted by bro-coiner extremists. It's a game theory fail. This is a net negative for Bitcoin adoption. The toxic maximalist meme was a joke. You're not supposed to embrace it and actually become tactless individual being rude for no reason. Echo chamber of the toxic maximalist joke is actually making these people toxic. End tweet. Remember when the toxic maximalist mob tried to cancel Lightning Labs because the WEF put them on their website, despite Lightning Labs having nothing to do with them? This is a great example of how trigger-happy toxicity can actually be weaponized against Bitcoin if it's so easy to sow discord. A tweet from Lola Leitz with a screenshot of Lightning Labs on the World Economic Forum website. Hate to say I told you so. Crypto Graffiti responds, with Roast Beef Starkness, what's going on here? Roast Beef responds, They gave us some random award, literally unprompted, zero prior comms. No one at Lightning Labs works with, nor is affiliated with the WEF. After seeing all the uproar about this, it seems all the WEF needs to do in order to sow discord in a community is update their website. Remember when the most tenured and well-respected Bitcoin educator was cancelled for being interested in smart contracts? Andreas received enough backlash for writing Mastering Ethereum that he felt the need to explain himself in this video. And if you think that I'm going to be faithful uh, to Bitcoin by limiting my intellectual curiosity, by refusing to read or learn about technologies that may, in some people's minds, threaten the supremacy of the one true doctrine. That's not science. That's religion. And I don't do religion. That's a litmus test. That's a loyalty test. That's a purity test. And I don't do any of that. I'm going to remain intellectually curious. Beware of Bitcoin echo chambers. It's hard to find a better example to illustrate the monoculture phenomenon of which I've written than this excerpt from the Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami. 
This conference is described in their FAQ as a Bitcoin-only event. Quote, Which cryptocurrencies will be covered at the event? Bitcoin only. This is a Bitcoin only conference. Please stay focused and on topic at the event. Save conversations about other protocols and cryptocurrencies for outside of the conference. However, it's a mistake to assume that the majority of Bitcoiners are the same as you, even those attending a Bitcoin only event, as we see here. Yeah, I'll tell you. But first, can I use this panel to ask two questions? Uh, raise your hand if you don't own Bitcoin and don't be shy. I just want to know. I'm Question, you all have Bitcoin? Get out. <laughs> okay. And raise your hand, and I'm dying to ask, like, I want to know if this room is a Bitcoin maxi room. Like, raise your hand if you own Ethereum. No. Oh, uh, okay. Oh. Okay. Get out. Get out. <laughs> is this the Bitcoin conference? What is this? Consider monetary maximalism. In 2020, I wrote about shitcoins and STOs to clarify my position on tokenized registered securities. I think I was the first to use the term Bitcoin monetary maximalist when describing my views. In retrospect, I believe I was attempting to convey a view that is sometimes known as shitcoin minimalism. That is to say, an acceptance that there is a utility provided by some non-Bitcoin protocols, even if they don't have the same attributes or robustness as Bitcoin. Point being, you can be a Bitcoin maximalist who considers it to be the best form of money by far while still finding value in protocols that offer utility other than sound money. I think there's a fundamental disconnect between the early rejection of pre-mines versus distribution of shares in a security. There's a major difference between creating and printing your own money versus creating and issuing shares in a company. Now, to be fair, there are plenty of examples of organizations that have blurred the lines between these two activities, but my point is that the latter model is completely valid, and it is a fundamental building block of modern capitalism, the ability to invest in a common enterprise. I believe that many maximalists are simply disinterested in non-monetary uses of cryptographic protocols, and are more interested in distinguishing Bitcoin from the rest of the ecosystem or if they are interested in the non-monetary use of such protocols, they consider that utility to be completely separate from Bitcoin and not in competition with it. Money is not a good like consumption goods, meant to be consumed, or capital goods, meant to produce consumption goods. There's no fundamental problem with wanting a wide variety of such goods to exist. More capital goods produce more consumption goods, and having more consumption goods means overall more wealth. The creation of new currency units does not lead to increased wealth. It is better to have a fixed number of currency units, as money merely serves as a means to facilitate trade for goods and capital. When a single currency is used, the pricing system for goods in different circumstances, such as location, production stage, and availability, can be used effectively. On the other hand, having two or more currencies would require pricing the goods in one currency, converting it to another currency, and then pricing the goods in the new currency. This could result in a situation where there are as many currencies as there are people, leading to a regressive barter system. In this regard, having a single currency is optimal, as it strikes a balance between using a single currency for everyone and a barter system without any currency at all. The addition of new currency does not lead to increased wealth, 
as it merely transfers wealth from those who receive it later to those who receive it earlier or to the currency issuers. The term Bitcoin maximalism is a descriptive rather than a prescriptive statement of facts. It simply refers to the refusal to transfer one's wealth to self-appointed currency issuers. Unfortunately, this is what happens when a culture of virtue signaling and purity testing enters into a feedback loop. Tweet from Jameson Lopp It seems somewhere along the way a certain sect of Bitcoin maximalism branched off and became not just anti-shitty money, but anti-all assets other than Bitcoin. Remember what happens when you take such extremism to its absurd logical conclusion. The clown meme. All cryptos except BTC are shitcoins. Equity and fixed income are shitcoins. Real estate is a shitcoin. Bitcoin is a shitcoin. Maximalism's muddled meaning. This entire article is a bit tongue-in-cheek, given that the entire point is that there's more to Bitcoin maximalism than the stereotypes. Tweet from Jameson Lop. I can't believe you said blank. I thought maxis don't believe that. The maximalism moniker is mostly meaningless at this point. Remember that it started off as a derogatory term and ended up being co-opted. There's no clear definition for it other than self-identifying as one. Remember how we came to be here today. In the beginning, there was only Bitcoin. Many cheap copycat scams came along and were dubbed shitcoins. Folks who wanted to drastically change Bitcoin but had their ideas rejected developed the pejorative term of maximalists to describe conservative-minded Bitcoiners. This sparked tribalism between Bitcoiners and multicoiners. Maximalists embraced the term as a counterculture movement. Over the years, this culture evolved and strengthened during scaling debates. Some folks accelerated extremism after fork contention died down, amplified by various pandemic factors. The negativity was sufficiently annoying that it spawned a counterculture, anti-maximalist movement of its own among some Bitcoiners. Now we live in an era of no true Bitcoiner due to competition amongst virtue signalers. Bitcoin is inherently counterculture. It is an adversarial environment. We should not expect that everyone will get along. Bitcoin is for enemies. Bitcoin maximalism itself is neither good nor bad. It was born as a rational pushback to flawed narratives used to perpetuate scams and poorly architected projects. What we've witnessed over the past decade is an evolution and fracturing of folks who hold maximalist views. Some have chosen more nuanced paths while others have remained absolutists. But I dare say that few folks fundamentally object to any particular set of maximalist views as long as the person espousing them is rational and polite. Pretty much all of the drama is a result of reactions to behavior and how folks are choosing to spread or defend their views. From that perspective, it's purely politics, psychology, and sociology. Fairly uninteresting phenomena for a technologist such as myself. As I've explained, I believe that a bit of toxicity is sometimes warranted in defense of Bitcoin. I certainly used such tactics myself during the scaling debates. What's more controversial is the use of this communication style in a more offensive and aggressive manner. 
if a goal of toxic maximalism is to increase the adoption of Bitcoin, I don't find it to be a great strategy. Toxic maximalism doesn't scale because it regularly fractures its own community via more and more stringent purity tests. The phenomenon is actually somewhat similar to the fracturing that we observed among the on-chain maximalists, aka the big blockers. Many of them forked to BCH, and then an even smaller subset forked to BSV, creating ever smaller networks and echo chambers with less and less value. Bitcoin maximalism is neither dead, nor is it dying. It is alive and well, though perhaps it's suffering from an identity crisis as a result of some folks trying to make it a more exclusive subculture. A tweet from Jameson. The sooner you realize that even self-proclaimed Bitcoin maximalists don't agree about who is a maximalist, the sooner you'll realize the absurdity and futility of complaining about behavior you ascribe to maximalists. Where do we go from here? This is clearly a complex issue of culture and social dynamics. I'm no expert on either, but a few principles come to mind. Assume argument opponents operate in good faith until proven otherwise. Be the change you wish to see in the world. Treat others as you wish to be treated. Do not allow yourself to be silenced. Don't feed the trolls. Live and let live. My personal Twitter strategy... Follow foxy folks, mute the morons, block the bastards. Bitcoin maximalism could benefit from a rebranding. The challenge with that is twofold. One, folks who hate Bitcoin, no-coiners and altcoin maximalists, are incentivized to amplify the narrative that Bitcoiners are unhinged lunatics. Two, the fringe group of toxic folks are willing to dedicate far more of their time perpetuating the stereotype than moderate or apathetic Bitcoiners are willing to fight it. The vast majority of maximalists I know are confident in their thesis that Bitcoin shall prevail and see no need for constant criticism of competing projects. The tiny minority of folks who are loudly vitriolic on social media have managed to make themselves a laughing stock while crafting a stereotype that does not fit the vast majority of Bitcoiners. While we can't stop the negativity and elitism perpetuated by people who believe they are defending Bitcoin on social media, we can reject it and refuse to engage with such activity. I think it's a mistake to allow toxic folks to set the narrative uncontested. Personally, I've already started referring to the toxic maximalists as Bitcoin Puritans because I think it's a more precise description. Brace yourselves, the Bitcoin Puritan memes are coming. While all maximalists agree that Bitcoin is the best form of money and they want to see it continue to succeed, it's the Bitcoin Puritans who feel the need to go the extra mile to reject anything that isn't Bitcoin, apply arbitrary purity tests to group Bitcoin users into insiders and outsiders, and chastise those who dare show interest in non-Bitcoin projects. After reading this tome, do you consider yourself to be a Bitcoin maximalist? If so, don't hesitate to self-identify as such. And if someone tries to gatekeep the meaning of maximalism with purity tests in order to reject your claim of being a maximalist, feel free to laugh at their authoritarianism. When this topic of what constitutes a real maximalist inevitably comes up countless times in the future, I'll simply link folks to this essay. You're welcome to do the same. Level-headed confidence and criticism beats blind cult-like rage. I believe a lot of the extremely online grievance merchants 
could benefit from a solid dose of stoicism. This line from a cypherpunk's manifesto feels appropriate. Quote, We the cypherpunks seek your questions and your concerns, and hope we may engage you so that we do not deceive ourselves. We will not, however, be moved out of our course because some may disagree with our goals. By no means do I expect the folks whose behavior I find objectionable to read this essay and change their ways. I just want to make my perspective on this situation clear, and in so doing, hopefully achieve a measure of consensus that I am far from alone in this perspective. I harbor no hatred or ill will against toxic Bitcoiners, as I know that they believe they are providing an important function in guiding the narratives for Bitcoin adoption. If anything, my feeling towards toxic folks is one of pity. It's a shame to see anyone spending a substantial portion of their life spreading negativity and engaging in shallow bickering devoid of substance. Those of you who spend an inordinate amount of your time posting on social media should ask yourself, are you going to regurgitate memes or will you put in the intellectually rigorous work to defend them? Do you want to create drama or do you want to create value? Are you contributing signal or are you creating noise? Are your arguments emotional or logical? If you're upset that people are using protocols other than Bitcoin, you won't help Bitcoin by jeering at them. It's better to channel that rage into something productive. Try talking less and building more. Quote, We are so focused on setting up the circular firing squad that we've forgotten who the real enemy is. The real enemy is totalitarianism, fascism, corrupt crony capitalism, and destructive banking systems that are absolutely centralized, share none of our values, and are causing enormous damage to the world. Andreas Antonopoulos P.S. If you disagree with the content of this article, feel free to publish your own perspective. This is a history, not the history of Bitcoin maximalism. I have no more authority than anyone else to opine upon this topic. I wouldn't advise trying to cancel me. It didn't work the first dozen times, and it won't work this time. Bitcoin is a battleground of ideas. In order to continue moving forward, we must have healthy discourse. Show us what you've got. I'm a Bitcoin maximalist, regardless of your opinion, who wants to see the world rebuilt to operate on a Bitcoin standard. And there's nothing anyone can do to take that away from me. Cypherpunks do not ask for permission, nor do they seek approval. Jameson Lop tweet. I'm regularly called a Bitcoin maximalist by altcoiners, and I'm called a shitcoiner by Bitcoiners. This amuses me to no end. All right, that wraps up A History of Bitcoin Maximalism by Jameson Lop. And I got to say, this was a remarkably fair take on the whole thing. Um, I, Like I said in yesterday's episode, I don't agree with everything, uh, but I don't, think, I don't think that anything that he wrote was unreasonable. My one big difference with his perspective is probably that I just think Ethereum is an incredibly scammy project. And I do not like, I was there when Bitcoin, I mean, Jameson Lop was too. I was there when Ethereum started. And... There's a distinction he talks about like a security being a viable token issuance model, right? Is that you're, you're issuing ownership in this company. 
But I think that is a difference between a credit instrument and a money. And the fact that people, the Ethereum system has always been sold as a monetary good, but it's trying to treat itself and get all of the benefits, the control and everything of being a security while claiming it's decentralized has made it dishonest from the beginning. But we can get into that a little bit more in a minute um, because that's, that is a whole thing all by itself. And it doesn't quite, it doesn't really matter in the context of Jameson Lopp's argument because Lopp didn't really defend Ethereum, so to speak. He just defended the idea of someone finding value in another project. Now, I do have a lot of saved uh, quotes and things and notes about this piece, um, and I want to take the time to get into it. So let's pause right here and hit our sponsor, and then we will jump back in. This show is brought to you by CoinKite. And I got to say, uh, Rad, my son, um, who is almost a year old now, discovered my uh, tap signer today, and he loves it. He, he loves the thickness of it and how you can chew on it. Now, obviously, he loves that it's a super secure hardware wallet, and it is an NFC wallet. So it's just a card that sticks in my wallet, and then I can use it with uh, nunchuck on my phone, which is what I have in my setup. I can just tap it to my phone and I can separate my keys from my phone. I have a physical hardware device that is literally just a card that sticks in my wallet. And, you know, he appreciates all that about it too, but he also likes to flip it over and stick it in his mouth. And it flies really funny when you throw it across the room. So Rad Swan recommends the tap signer. Now, I personally also have to say the cold card is a pretty boss hardware wallet, and it is one of the longest running. And, you know, CoinKite has just been in this space forever. And, you know, I got to give it rad just isn't quite old enough to understand the cold card. But I feel like one day, you know, he really appreciates the simplicity of the tap signer. But I think he's going to love the fact that the cold card just has just anything that you think you could do with a hardware wallet, that freaking thing does and is secure. It's air gapped. It's Bitcoin only. It is the cypherpunk calculator to keep your Bitcoin safe. Not your keys, not your coins. Get yourself a cold card and get 9% off with code Bitcoin Audible. It's all right there in the show notes for your convenience. Now let's jump back in. Now I don't feel like it's super important to go back into all of this again at Jameson Lop, I mean, particularly on the show, not, not for Lop. Um, but Lop has been, uh, on the receiving end, which like he even mentions this in the article. This has happened many times to Lop throughout the history of Bitcoin or throughout his history in Bitcoin. And this, or at least my, my impression of this is that it is a response largely to, the Tukasa adopting Ethereum to selling multi-sig uh, custodial services to Ethereum users and for the Ethereum network. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. It kind of irks me a little bit. I do get it. Um, he even uses, it's funny, the, the video, the video uses from the Bitcoin 2022 conference with, uh, it's Pascal uh, Gautier or Gautier, I can't, I can't remember exactly how to say it, um, but it's Pascal from uh, um, Ledger, 
who is asking the question about who has Bitcoin, who doesn't have Bitcoin, and then who has Ethereum. And I'm the one actually saying, uh, I was uh, moderating the panel, but I'm the one actually telling everybody to get out. Now, obviously, obviously I was joking. And it's actually funny, someone, I can't even remember who it was, um, but somebody on Twitter cut that and literally tried to like start an outrage thing and like post it in a bunch of different places that like Guy Swan was an asshole because he was literally, he literally thought that like people should leave the conference if they had Ethereum, which like I, I feel bad for somebody like that who can't, who cannot, like I cannot, cannot identify a joke. Like life must not be any fun at all if you can't, if you just don't recognize like that everybody around you, all sarcasm like, imagine if you went through the world not being able to recognize any sarcasm. But I mentioned that, and I think I'm pretty sure I just muted the guy. I don't really remember. Um, but, uh, and it didn't come up again. But I mentioned that simply because, um, you know, it's very much in line with, with the tweet that Brad Mills has, or that Lop put in this article, was the idea that, like, being a toxic maximalist was mostly a joke like there are people 100 percent. there are situations and there are people where being like there is there is we should give them absolutely not an inch and they do not deserve our respect but i mean it's just like you know what what's on vinyl which by the way actually i should probably announce that. i don't even think i've talked about it on the show but there is a, a vinyl we're doing a collectible of everybody is a scammer by Michael Goldstein. So it is on vinyl. I think maybe I did mention this, but it is on vinyl now. And uh, we are doing a, it's a fundraiser basically for development. Like there's not a whole lot of quote unquote profit in it just because the vinyl does kind of cost most of the fund. But anything that we make is just going to Bitcoin core development. And I'm doing, I've been doing this with Bobby from Voltage. Um, and uh, it's just like a really fun little side project that we've just been working on for a few months. And I really, really love that piece. But that piece is another great example of that, like, a lot of this is tongue-in-cheek. You know, like, everybody is a scammer is, is really about, is about your frame of reference, about understanding that everybody wants your Bitcoin and that you need to, you need to be extremely conservative and extremely thoughtful about the decisions you make because everyone is going to promise you anything that they want or anything that they can to get your Bitcoin. And that in the context of real estate is a scam. And I talk about this in the guy's take as well, is the idea that real estate and securities and stuff are a scam. It is about the mental framework of understanding that you don't really own those things. Like your real estate is subject to your jurisdiction. The government could come in any day and just take it from you. That security is somebody else's promise. It's a credit. It is a debt, a liability of someone else to pay you. And they have counterparty risk. They might not show up. They might not fulfill that promise. The government might not care that they don't pay you. All of these things are dependent on someone else. So you don't really own them. You don't sovereignly own them. And that's what real estate is a scam is supposed to imply. That's the knowledge behind the kind of tongue-in-cheek joke. Obviously, buying a house is not a scam. I have a house. Like, I would not be participating. I wouldn't have a house if I literally thought it was a scam. 
And I think a lot of people have just taken the idea and pushed it too far in how they relate to it and how they relate to other people with that framework and never seem to really understand what the point of it was. Lot makes a good point about this. And this is also something we talked about in the guy's take. Again, I'm kind of repeating myself a lot here. Um, and I will have a link to it. Um, the, the rant gets a little bit, a lot more heated because I really go down the, this is about money uh, rabbit hole and why, you know, at the same time that like, I think it's incredibly important to be diplomatic I think it's good to be nice. Like I, t- I try to be a really nice guy. I like people generally. Um, like I don't give people crap. I, I, I dabbled in shit coins. I didn't get it. And you know, I'm tangenting on top of tangents right now. But going back to one of Lop's points is, and this is a good point. This is something that I think we should at least recognize is that if our goal is to protect people from scams. If our goal is to protect people from altcoins and shitcoins and just terrible projects that have no future and or are literally trying to fleece them of all of their money and run away and it is a VC gambling culture that does not give one iota of crap whether or not it ever releases a product because they have a token that they can sell, they can hype up, and then they can VC jump to the next one. And I think that is an overwhelming majority of the market. But if our goal is to protect people from that, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin maximalism message or or it's not the message. It's the culture, the persona on Twitter, what is bleeding through, whether or not it is our intent or whether even it's the bulk of us, what is getting through to them isn't working. It's literally the opposite. It's not getting through to them. And Lop has a really good point. He said in this article that most people who end up being Bitcoin maximalists isn't because we explained it to them. It's because they got burned on the scams and they dabbled in shitcoins like everybody and they had their ass handed to them like everybody and then they realized what a joke it all was. And then suddenly everything that the maximalists have been talking about the, the, the people who can actually explain it and do actually understand the why and the where and wh- where this all came from, that they actually had a point and that there was something very important to discern or to pull from the information, from the lessons that they had to teach. But there should be something in that that what we're doing isn't working. It, it like is, As much as the Bitcoin community... And the Bitcoin-only community is very strong and is growing. And I think it will continue to grow. And we aren't going anywhere. I think the conviction is stronger than it's ever been. But whatever it is that we are doing to get people into that, most people simply make the mistakes that lead them there. And maybe that's the only way. But I think there is something to be said for being more welcoming. And you can do that. And I understand I have these two sides of me that argue about this a lot is the the balance between loosening the message between um loosening between watering down the message, watering down the truth and 
between being a dick. And I think that's just a very, very difficult tightrope to walk on, but it can be done. It abs- there is no reason that we cannot be convicted, that we cannot be straightforward and explain ourselves politely without giving an inch to the message, without watering down what we're saying at all. You do not have to lie to be nice. In fact, I think that is a horrible, horrible perception that has been pushed by the mainstream is that being nice is in telling people what they want to hear and making them comfortable. And I completely disagree. And I talked about this in the guy's take as well, is telling someone a difficult truth that will make the conversation uncomfortable, but giving it to them directly and kindly is what is being nice. It is far not you are you are being I would argue it is it is a terrible person who refuses to tell someone that they know what they know is true just to keep the conversation comfortable. That is someone who is more afraid more concerned for their comfort than the delusions of some other person. Falsehoods matter. When you try to live by a lie, you will be punished for it. It will be painful. It will be horrible. There will be consequences. You can't just pretend reality isn't... You, you, can't make a wing, you can't make wings out of cardboard and fly and jump off a cliff. And it is not nice to, because that child... You, you see a child or a freaking adult, whoever it is, you see someone doing this. The nice thing, according to the mainstream, is to tell them, you can do anything you want. You can fly. Go jump off the cliff. Because if you tell them otherwise, they're going to cry and they're going to be very upset. And all of this work that they did is going to have gone to waste. No, the nice thing to do is sit them down and be like, listen, this isn't going to work and you're going to die if you do this. Please let me take these wings off and we can go back to the drawing board and I'll help you lay out a plan that will make this not be a death sentence for you. Or Jesus Christ, just go to someone else who can help you out with this. But don't jump off the cliff. That is the nice thing to do. And I feel like we are in a world of people doing exactly the opposite, all in the name of being nice. That is the part of me that understands the, some of the aggressiveness of Bitcoin maximalism, in a sense. The, the unapologetic nature of, the Bitcoin, of, a, of a swath of the Bitcoin maximalist culture, so to speak. However, being a dick just because you're for no reason at all for people asking legitimate questions who are just in some altcoin or lost in some shitcoin land, they need our help. They need a helping hand. They need a rope. They need a life raft. And if they are mean and they are vicious, you know, being defensive about that and taking offense to it is a position of weakness. I always, I've increasingly, I always, good God, no, I fail at this all the time. I'm a dick on Twitter. Twitter is, I'm certainly, certainly participated in this. And uh, I do get uh, overly defensive. It's just like Lop said, it very much is the environment for outrage and for controversial, like punchy, like jabs, you know? And that's why I, I like the podcast and I kind of come back to the podcast because 
when I when I'm talking on this show, I talk I talk here into my mic, into my computer by myself right here, exactly like I talk to everybody in my life. And if you've ever met me, I'm sure you think that's true. But lately, and maybe it's just because of Noster, um, on Twitter in particular, uh, because Twitter has, it, it's so easy to just get caught up in the storm, so to speak. But Noster, I really love Noster because it's got a much it's far more lighthearted. There aren't any controversial algorithms, you know, or controversy algorithms that are like pushing things that are going to outrage us and everything. And it's also explorative because it's still new and it's and it's a community that's very cohesive. There's there's an explicit goal. And so there's a lot of commonality and there's a lot of camaraderie, so to speak, on Noster. So it makes it a much nicer place. And I've seen people disagree and entertain things that I know would have gone completely the opposite way on Twitter. And it's made me, uh, it's definitely made me readjust how I behave on Twitter. And now when I'm arguing with someone, especially if they immediately come back and they insult me, I did this just yesterday actually with someone who assumed that I was a Republican and that I was uh, like a, like a stark Republican and like started just giving me all of these arguments that I was supposedly going to give back that I didn't, not even slightly, like just imagining an entire person in their head that they're arguing with that had nothing to do with me. That happens a lot. Um, I mean, and I do that, obviously. Like it's, we put people in these stereotypes or these, these, we take this political baggage that we have and we just dump it all on that person. And we're like, oh, that's why you voted for Trump. It's like, bitch, I didn't vote for Trump. What are you talking about? But I try to give them... I try to address the, it requires a lot of rewriting, um, cause my, you know, the default is just insult them right back. Um, but I try to remove it. I, I remove the insult and <laughs> I type it out and then I remove it and I make kind of a snide, um, like just like unkind way to respond to it, but I remove all the direct insults. And then I rewrite it again to because I realize I'm being petty and I'm just trying to play the higher ground that I'm not insulting him, but I'm definitely trying to insult him. And so I usually do like three or four edits until I get it back down to just like, this is exactly what I want to say and this is how I want to respond. And then I address the fact that they insulted me and I said, you know, I really would appreciate it that we could just actually have a conversation here. And then if they come back and insult me again, a lot of times people will actually adjust. They'll actually calm down and start having the debate with you about whatever the topic is. Not always. Um, but I usually give it like three insults in a row um, where they don't even address the point before. You know, that's where the have fun staying poor comes out. And they earned it. I, I let them earn it. But if someone just disagrees with me, and they are going to resort to being a dick. I don't want to perpetuate that in the conversation. I actually want to try to get through to that person. And I will give it a good little go. Um, and maybe I'll come back in a week and try again. But that doesn't mean that I change what I tell them. That I tell them something that I don't believe. It just means that I stay on topic I explain my point clearly, 
And if they want to be crappy people, they can be crappy people. Now, why is it? Going back to Lop's point, and who I think Lop is trying to address in this article, is a why is it that there is a subset of Bitcoin quote-unquote maximalists, um, he refers to them as Bitcoin Puritans, who only resort to the aggressiveness that immediately everybody is actually a scammer, real estate is actually a scam, all of this stuff. And as I said in The Guy's Take, um, is that I think they can explain it. I think he had, he had a really good part in this article. I can't remember exactly where it was. Um, I didn't save this one. But talking about how they embraced and internalized all the mottos and the, the supposed principles of Bitcoin and Bitcoin only, like Bitcoin maximalism but that they never actually understood the foundation for it so that they can't argue it. And you know that experiment about the monkeys and the bananas is, uh, you know, there's, there's a bunch of monkeys in a room and there's a ladder in the middle of the room and there's ba- bananas hanging above the ladder. And this was, researchers did this. Um, and uh, when one of the monkeys would climb up the ladder to try to get the bananas, every monkey in the room would get fire hosed like just just hit with incredibly powerful and painful water um and everybody the whole room would get uh would get doused then uh the monkeys stopped climbing up the ladder to get the banana now they would introduce a new monkey that did not know about this and they would start to climb up the ladder now remember all the other monkeys are going to get sprayed too they would yank the monkey down and beat him up to teach him not to go get the, the um, bananas. He didn't know why, but he's, he didn't go get the banana. He would stop. He knew because everybody else was forcing him into this situation or trying to teach him a lesson in a very uh, Bitcoin Puritan sense. However, they kept doing this. They kept cycling out and bringing in new monkeys until... The entire room was filled with monkeys who had never been sprayed by the fire hose. And they were still doing it. They were all, every time a new monkey was introduced, would try to climb up the ladder, and the monkeys, the, everybody else, would pull him down and beat him up, and they had no idea why they were doing it. I think there is a part of the community, of the culture, that is in that place. They don't know they have, are aggressively, very aggressively beating the crap out of anyone who is doing the thing that they think or know to be wrong, but they don't understand why or where it came from or the fundamental reasons. And I just, I don't think that helps us. Um, but there's, there's quite a bit, I have quite a bit of notes on NFTs because I don't agree with everything that Jamison Lop says. And I think there's a little bit of defending, as I said at the start of this, is that I really do not think, it, I mean, as much as like I'm not going to hate somebody for owning Ethereum, I don't think they are a bad person. But I do not think that Ethereum is a is a good 
or an an ethical project. Um, the the way Ethereum was created and everything that happened around the beginning, and then the constant rebranding and the twisting of what it is to try to make it fit into something, try try to distance itself from how it started. It just left too big, too terrible of a taste in my mouth for me to see it any differently today. And in the context of Casa and Jameson Lop and them providing services for this, I understand that there's a market. I completely understand that there are customers. I would not have any personal interest in serving that. But I don't hate Jameson Lop. Like, I don't think... Like, I don't... Honestly, I don't care... I think we just have really bigger fish to fry. I think we've, or at least in, in some ways, we've spent a lot of energy trying to fight shitcoins in crypto, which I think just being present, making our case, not watering down the message, and then building and adopting as fast as we can go to win the geopolitical battleground is going to make or break our case anyway it is going to be the thing that proves us right or proves us wrong and i large i just i think the crypto space the altcoin and shitcoin space is just not really relevant you know you know it made a whole lot more sense in 2017 to spend a lot of time and energy on that but i think it makes a whole lot less sense today now, I've got a lot of notes um, from this piece for things that I wanted to address and push back a little bit on what James, uh, uh, Jameson said, but um, I have way, way, way too many notes, and this is already practically a two-hour episode, and it's late. Um, so one thing I will hit uh, says, quote, Bitcoin is not merely money. It is a new type of database with radical integrity and robustness assurances that can be used to, uh, to improve the trustworthiness of other systems that anchor into it. This perspective also seems to grind the gears of some maximalists who believe that Bitcoin should only be money. End quote. Now, again, we talked about this in the guy's take, um, but this is true on its face, that it is a new type of database. It is a r radical degree of integrity and settlement assurances. I mean, it's basically a giant distributed timestamp server. Satoshi even explained it that way. But if I had to describe myself, I would pro I think the term that Jameson Lump, even though I, I wouldn't align entirely in my decisions and the degree to which I left more room for something else, so to speak, um... I would probably call myself a Bitcoin monetary maximalist. And my entire argument in the guy's take for Bitcoin maximalism was about the monetary aspect. But when I hear something like this, that it should only be used as money, is I like that's I do not believe that it should only be used for money. I believe that money should never, its use as money, should never be sacrificed for some other much lesser use case, far less important value. Money is necessarily a sound, global, censorship-resistant 
digital monetary good is far and away the most valuable use case there is. I've said this many, many times on the show, but the money is the network that enables an economy to flourish, to grow. The utility, when people say like, oh, this, your money has no utility, it doesn't do anything, fail to recognize something that has so great a utility as to be invisible. Because there is no valuable, there is no economic exchange and communication without it. The money is basically, the value of the money is basically a reflection of all other utilities put together. It's the size of the whole economy. Why? Because half of every trade is money. You have a car, you trade it for money. You have a banana, you trade it for money. Like the other half, the other half of that value is the money, which means that the money is representative of all of the value in its economic network. It is the mirror image of it. It's the tally of who is allocating it and where it should go, which means that any single use case, bananas or cars or a stock exchange or whatever it is, any individual utility is necessary, NFTs, good lord, is necessarily vastly lower, just like so, so far down on the hierarchy of importance on the value scale. So sure, you can put NFTs on the blockchain. You can put on the Bitcoin time chain. Sure, there are many things that you can anchor into it and it is ultimately a database. It is a software system. But those things should benefit or work in tandem with its operation as money. If it is ever sacrificing its ability to serve its purpose as money, then we are making a huge step backward. Now that goes back to the conversation that we had with MVK on the show. I can't remember the chat number, but I'll have that in the show notes as well. Like I said, we've talked about all these issues numerous times before um, in different contexts, and that probably has uh, the recent discussion on inscriptions and NFTs on Bitcoin. And I think this really kind of also applies to things like Taro and RGB, where you're like issuing tokens and stuff on Bitcoin. It's like, that's all well and good. And what the combination of SegWit and Taproot enabled with being able to literally put entire JPEGs on the Bitcoin time chain. To sum up what we talked about, what I talked about with MVK, um, is, or maybe it was John Vallis. I did talk about it with John Vallis too. Anyway, to sum it up, I think it's pretty much, I think it's unfortunate. I, I wish it hadn't happened in, in the context that, like, obviously you could always put it in op return or you could build it in a bunch of transactions or something like that. But the, the ease with which it became possible to do this because of Taproot is unfortunate, in my opinion. But I do think it seems to be an inevitable result of simply expanding what we can do with the script. If you can put any sort of arbitrary data in it, that's what you can do with it. And, and I think it should make us doubly skeptical of any removing of any limit moving forward. I think we should remember the risk of spam, quote unquote, and the risk of external data, non-monetary data being put into the Bitcoin system. Because again, I think the monetary use case is far and away the most valuable thing. And if anything else is threatening that or diminishing that, 
I think that is a net loss. However, I don't really think the inscriptions and the NFTs and the, the credit tokens or whatever on Bitcoin really diminish it. I really don't think it has that great of an effect because they are still just JPEGs. They are still just credit instruments that will be priced with credit risk. And ultimately, they will want to be settled in Bitcoin. And I think it will end up lending itself more value to Bitcoin in the long run. And I think NFTs will largely just be irrelevant because I just don't think there's a huge market for collectible JPEGs that are overpriced that isn't solved by something like pair credit or uh, Noster badges. And the risk here or the consequence here are full blocks. And it's like, okay, well, the full ex- the, the entire expectation here was that we are going to be in a place with full blocks always. So really what this amounts to, if, if we thought that the system as designed couldn't survive full blocks or high fees, um, even for a short span of time, I mean, like this is, this is the Bitcoin that we want. It, we, it would be nicer if it was just all monetary transactions, but if it's NFTs for a short period of time, I don't know. I just can't bring myself to care that much about it, honestly. Like I said, it's unfortunate, but there's little we can do about it. And any attempt to get rid of it or to control how people use the environment that we have specifically created, I think that lends itself to a much bigger risk than just dealing with it. I'm going to skip down a lot towards the end of my notes here because there's one other thing that I wanted to address. And then largely, I think the rest of this... um, can be found, conversations about this can be found in the Guys Take episode about Bitcoin maximalism. In the chats that we had with NVK and John Vallis, and then in the conversation, in the Guys Take following, and in the read of Only the Strong Survive. And I went into a lot of the things that I found myself writing in these notes in the Guys Take after that read. And that is largely the perspective that I have about what is going on in crypto, uh, why I think um, it is something to stay away from and to steer other people away from, and why I really don't think, I really am not 100% sure that this is going to be like, oh, we're going to have like a few dominant things. I'm less inclined to believe that, and I know I believe that in the face of evidence to the contrary. But I think I make... A decent case at least and I try to steel man the opposite but I still tend to fall I still tend to fall where I am on this issue um, but I'll read Lop's quote on this um, uh, before kind of setting the stage here it says toxic maximalists don't seem to understand that it's possible to want to see multiple projects succeed including Bitcoin It can be frustrating to see such close-minded and cult-like behavior within the community. While it could be argued that money is a zero-sum game, it's not controversial to claim that technology and wealth are certainly not zero-sum games. As such, I believe that multiple crypto asset networks will exist and serve different use cases. Of course, the value will be concentrated in the largest few due to network effects and that the fact that no one wants to have to manage dozens of different tokens. End quote. So, 
my thinking here is I really, I really think the, the things that we will think of as quote-unquote crypto asset use cases will be handled with technology. It will expand wealth. And of course, it is not a zero-sum game, but I really don't think it's going to come with a token. Or if it is a token, it will explicitly be a credit token. It will, it will be a centralized token with credit risk. It will be a security, or it will simply be somebody's promise, quote-unquote priced in some other thing, like a Bitcoin credit token or a stable coin that's a dollar credit token, whatever it is. Um, uh, and this is why I'm very, very interested in the pair credit um, idea and the, the system, which I think they're going to have an announcement here in like the next month uh, with kind of like a first iteration of what that is going to look like. But the thing is, is I don't think it needs a blockchain. I think there's a lot of things that are trying to ride the coattails tails of the idea of a decentralized consensus network that are still inherently centralized and that do not need and in fact do not even benefit from that type of technology or that type of environment and i think it's a lot like like if bittorrent a peer-to-peer -peer decentralized network or the internet a peer-to-peer -peer decentralized internet essentially um if these things required you to have an internet token and a bittorrent token to use like as as the design as it currently is someone would just redesign to transfer the data without it because it doesn't need it. And I think that is so much of what crypto is, is it's trying to fit tokens and blockchains into things and even solve use cases that would like a decentralized exchange is a really great use case. But I think the decentralized exchanges that we will be using, which may very well be just a handful of very big networks that are adopting this sort of technology and use these cryptographic concepts of integrity and assurances and use maybe the bitcoin network for its consensus lever so to speak its consensus anchor i don't think it will have a token i think the idea that it has its own monetary good going back to the idea of bitcoin monetary maximalism i think anything that creates a empty token that is trying to have a specialized utility where we're going to just barter this one token for this one explicit utility that isn't some sort of security, that isn't some just explicit ownership in a capital enterprise of some sort. It necessarily has to develop a monetary premium. It has to fight, it has to compete on the stage of money, which I do agree with LOP is a zero-sum game. We are going to tend toward one money. It's just that monetary networks and monetary shifts happen on very, very long timescales. They're extremely sticky. They're, I mean, one of the, the never-ending uh, uh, arguments for why nobody's ever going to use Bitcoin is that you still price everything in dollars. And it's like, dude, that's like saying that you're never going to use, you, you'll never use centimeters because you still think in inches and feet and miles. Like, that's not an argument for 
monetary transition that's just saying that one is still more of a money than the other like that's the consequence of a money developing not the not the precursor we can't possibly lead bitcoin being money by being making it a unit of account when it's not even fully established as a store of value or a medium of exchange it's the last step it's like saying Oh, you're never, you're never going to be strong because you don't have muscles while you're watching someone work out. It's like, well, yeah, that comes after. Like, like that's the end of the process. And breaking those network effects, breaking those associations, it is like switching from traditional to metric or speaking an entirely new language. Like, it's very slow. You know, when you're learning Spanish, what are you going to do? What are you going to do for the first year or two? You're just going to be constantly translating. He's like, okay, what does this mean in English? But you can't skip that step if you speak English now. You can only understand Spanish. It, it makes the most sense to learn the new language in relation to the concepts that you already know in the other language. Money is actually worse. Money is how we value things, and its effectiveness is tied to how many other people are using it because it's got so many economic aspects to it in volume in the liquidity of the network itself and the number of places and people who have any trust in it and because it is a medium of trust it's going to take a very very long time money's usually uh, the shift from one monetary good to another monetary good specifically like a type of monetary good usually happens like from one society to an ex, especially when when one clashes into the other. We're talking like measured in centuries sometimes. And then when you combine that with the technology moving um, uh, at the pace of the internet and software, I think it's just going to be a very, very long, difficult and grinding battle to figure out how to build. I think it's just shifting how we think about how to build software in general and what complications and what things we need to account for in how these things are built. That we should be thinking about these things, whether or not they have trust in them or um, uh, like where their element of trust is, uh, where their weaknesses is, weaknesses are, where they have trusted third parties and counterparty risk and credit risk. Like suddenly we are thinking about these in the context of sovereignty, of decentralization. And the quickest way to seemingly solve all of the problems was to give it a token and stick it on a blockchain. But I don't think these are the optimal solutions to the problem. I don't, I think it's a failure to both A, understand how the, the specificity of the problems themselves, but then also seeing the opportunity of selling a token. So we're going to try to make it fit, even though we're not really, we're not thinking about the problem. We're not really thinking hardcore about solving explicitly the problem. We have a solution, and we're trying to figure out how to stick it to the problem that we're trying to solve. Um, like they're they're trying to lead themselves because we have changed. We are thinking about things differently. We're thinking of them in a new context. 
and realizing that we're, the internet has always just been like, oh, how do we build it to make it work? And then 30 years of doing that, I mean, obviously that's not always the case, but 30 years of largely doing that has led to a highly centralized, highly controlled, highly surveilled internet because we just kept putting counterparties in. We just kept putting trusted third parties into every arrangement and every system that we build. But in with Bitcoin on the table, with a new technology that you can actually sovereignly own and that has to work in the face of extremely powerful adversaries and the realization that we can have something in the digital space without counterparty risk, essentially. I think it gets us to readjust what is possible and that's why, that's why there's been this aggressive push in all of these different iterations of decentralized social media and peer-to-peer data transfer and Keat and Hole Punch, Noster, Mastodon, Diaspora, like all of these things. I think these are the constant push and more importantly, the feedback of the energy and the mindset that Bitcoin has focused. And I think crypto is largely just how do we stick tokens on these things? Because now we know these things are valuable and that these goals are desirable and we can sell a token to we can we can say that, that we're trying to solve this and we can sell a token and i do think also that a lot of people are very genuinely trying to solve all of those problems the privacy problems the decentralization problems the smart contract problems i'm not saying that they're not being earnest about it but then there are a lot of them that aren't and there's a massive amount of money that is that i think poisons the project because they get incentivized to align to sell the token and make partnerships and have something to push that sounds good for the network or for the community rather than actually like buckling down and building to solve the problem and understand exactly what needs to happen in order to get to the other side. But again, I feel like Alan Farrington and Big Al explained it better than me. And I probably explained it a whole lot better in the guy's take following that one. Um, so I will link to Only the Strong Survive um, because that's a lot of what we discuss in that and why I think. And that's aside from the fact that I think really Ethereum's great use case, the empirical evidence of Ethereum's staying power I really think it's just the ability to create massive amount of scams and tokens and these projects that could be sold. And, and I really think it's, a, it's kind of fallout from fiat. Is It's the fiat monetary culture and the fiat finance culture copied and pasted onto an open source system, onto an op- a piece of open source software where you can issue yourself a bunch of tokens and sell them to people who don't understand what's going on for a lot of money. And then you can dump those and go to the next project. And you can always just have the best of intentions of, oh, this is a cool problem to solve, Put it, give it a token. This is a cool problem to solve, give it a token. And then jump from project to project to project with all of these VCs and supposed founders and startup investors and all of these things and then you realize you look at their history of projects and you realize they never even stayed until something was viable the degree of their interest and the longevity of their commitment 
was tied to the price of the token, not the problem or the project. And that's why I actually think the people who do solve these problems and do have, like, DEXs, there's a whole lot of DEXs that don't deserve the D. They're just exchanges. The D stands for decentralized, for those of you who don't know. And I think a lot of them sell themselves as having the decentralized on the front just so that they can say that, oh, we can't be regulated. Oh, we can't. This isn't really a finance or this isn't actually a casino run by some particular group, even though it basically is. Which, you know, part of me, the, the anarchist side of me is like, okay, I don't care. This is how a free market works, and we are only going to create a robust market if we all learn the lessons and actually change the culture and the knowledge in the economy itself. But that certainly doesn't mean that I have to promote it, or that I have to say that I don't think it's a really bad, unethical project, or that I think it's largely non-viable in the long term. But I'll end this... uh, Kind of the same way that I ended the guy's take. Again, I have a lot of notes that I didn't get to cover, but I'll link to the John Ballas, the MVK episodes, uh, Only the Strong Survive, and then the guy's take on Bitcoin maximalism. And then I will end this with one of the points that I said in the Bitcoin maximalism guy's take episode is if I am wrong, that's totally fine. I'm not going to be pointlessly mean to a bunch of people who like altcoins or Doge or Ethereum or Shiba, whatever. I don't really care that much. I wish for your sake that you weren't invested because I think it's going to work. I think it's going to be a painful, stressful ride with very, very little payoff. But we all learn the lessons. You know, we all... Everybody, every Bitcoin OG I know, they bought, sold, and traded shitcoins at one point, period. They just did. We all learned that lesson. Now, in the long run, my goal here, the reason that I'm passionate about Bitcoin, the reason I'm passionate about these principles, and that I spend all day, every day learning, digging into, and thinking about these things, is because, and the technology itself, obviously, that makes all of this possible is because I think it is critically important. I think the most valuable thing that we could possibly do is to separate the monetary networks, our consensus networks that build society and make society possible from government, from the state. If it is dependent on the state, it is doomed to fail. It is doomed to go through a cycle of massacre, of tyranny, and oppression. If we can separate these things, we can solve a fundamental scaling problem of society for good. Now, I think that means a highly iterative, highly competitive market where we create one global system based on one global DNA for that network. We end up with largely one monetary system, Bitcoin. In my, in my perceived future. If it turns out to be that this problem can only be solved with a thousand shitcoins or five big networks in tandem 
and that there's, you know, maybe it's just a hedge because one of them could break and it all is all just software and we need, you know, there's only ever so much trust in any one of them. At the end of the day, I don't care. If we solve the problem that way, awesome. I will put my foot in my mouth and say that I was an idiot and I will celebrate with everybody at the party on the other end of this. But in the meantime, I genuinely believe that Bitcoin is by far and wide with no comparison. Bitcoin is the best shot at this. And I am not going to dilute my attention and my time to a whole bunch of crypto crap. Maybe that's unfair. I don't think it's really all that unpolite. Like, you know, maybe someone takes offense to that, but I don't know. It's what I think. It's the best I can do. I love you all. I, uh, I hope that is okay with you. And I hope that you want to see those same goals be achieved. And, you know, generally, don't be a dick if you don't have to be a dick. Unless it's like Richard Hart or Craig Wright, then just go ham, you know, go to town. Greenpeace, good God, they have earned it. But seriously, if somebody's just asking a question or somebody's unfortunately feel sorry for someone who's lost in the shitcoin jungle, like they need our help, not our ridicule. And, you know, for someone like Jameson Lop and for someone in the position of Casa, share your opinion, you know, give them hell for adopting Ethereum and, you know, going into the Ethereum market and providing customers service for uh, what I believe to be a crappy project. But at the end of the day, I'm just, I don't have the energy to care that much about it. I still have a lot of respect for Jameson Lop. Uh, he's done so much for Bitcoin and has been in this space for a very, very long time. And he's a cool guy if you've ever met him. So yeah, do I think he's a kind of a bitch for going with Ethereum multisig? Sure. But I still like him. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. And I'll be back here tomorrow with another episode of Bitcoin Audible. Uh, thank you guys for listening. I love you all. I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode um, and very long, very long read and very long. This was a, supposed to be a short guy's take. It's freaking 10 o'clock. I have other work to do. What are you people doing to me? All right. I will uh, catch you guys on the next episode. we got a lot of great stuff and I'm excited. I'm excited. It's going to be a good week. Do not forget to subscribe to Bitcoin Audible. Do not forget to check out our amazing sponsors that make this show possible. Swan Bitcoin the best onboarding in the Bitcoin space. If you're trying to figure out how to get some Bitcoin, just yeah, just go to Swan Bitcoin. And CoinKite. Uh, MVK, by the way, for those of you who didn't know, is the CEO of CoinKite. That's who we had on the show. And I will link to the episode with him because uh, we had a really, really fun discussion. I got a lot of great feedback. People people really enjoyed that show. Um, and we talked about a, stuff, a bunch of stuff that was relevant here. Um, and uh, uh, CoinKite, by the way, makes the gold card hardware wallet. And they are the ones who keep your Bitcoin safe and you can get 9% off with Bitcoin Audible and lastly fold. I'm super stoked. Uh, I hope to have something to announce very soon. Uh, roundups are coming around the corner so that you can round up all of your purchases and buy just a little bit of Bitcoin 
every single time you buy stuff. I, God, I am so excited about this. You have no idea how much I have wanted this feature in so many services for so long. So I, I promise you that the second that I know, it will be published on this podcast. So stay tuned and uh, don't forget to get your phone card. I am finally out of here. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, everybody, take it easy. Waste no time arguing about what a good man should be. Be one. Marcus Aurelius. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.